welcome to Little Known History of Sydney. I'm Ilana Pender-Rose. And I'm Dr Robert Jones. Today we will be talking about the Castle Hill Convict Rebellion of 1804, or the Second Battle of Veninga Hill, in which 400 Irish political rebels attempted to overthrow the colonial authorities of New South Wales and escape their lifelong exile by the British government. This little-known skirmish marks the one and only convict uprising during nearly eight decades of penal transportation to Australia. But to understand it, we must first rewind and touch on the First Battle of Vinegar Hill. On the 21st of June, 1798, British troops fighting on behalf of King George III defeated a force of some 18,000 Irish rebels on a site near the historic Irish town of Enniscorsey, known as Vinegar Hill. Though most of the rebels, who were members of a revolutionary republican organisation known as the United Irishmen, would live to fight another day, this would prove to be a decisive turning point in an uprising that lasted barely five months, bringing Ireland to the brink of independence before being savagely beaten back by superior British and loyalist firepower. Speaking from the dock at his trial by court-martial, the leader of the rebellion, Theobald Wolfe Tone, stated defiantly that, From my earliest youth, I have regarded the connection between Britain and Ireland as a curse of the Irish nation, and felt convinced that whilst it lasted, this country could never be free or happy. He was certainly not alone in his thinking, and, though he went to the gallows as a martyr in November 1798, there were still many Irish Republicans who were ready and willing to fight on in his name. Some of these men had been at Vinegar Hill on that fateful day in June, and, having been convicted of treason against their would-be British rulers, were transported to the distant penal colony of New South Wales as political prisoners. Dr Jones, tell us a bit more about these men. Who were they, and what were they fighting for? Well, if we look at the history of Ireland, there is essentially a narrative of resistance to British rule that goes back hundreds of years. When we think of British colonialism, we're often inclined to think of the empire that covered a quarter of the globe, Queen Victoria's empire, rule Britannia, and so on. But this is to overlook the fact that the British colonial project had actually begun much earlier, long before the reign of Queen Victoria, and long before the Hanover dynasty, of which she was a member, had even ascended to the British throne. Ireland was essentially Britain's oldest colony, having been regarded on and off as English property since the 12th century, and having been strategically settled by English and Scottish nationals since uh, the 17th century. By this time, of course, the Reformation had taken place in Europe, and this has had a profound effect on the social and religious orders of both England and Scotland, giving rise to the Anglican Church in the former and the Presbyterian Kirk in the latter. Ireland, however, remains overwhelmingly Catholic throughout this whole tumultuous period, forming a somewhat contentious issue in the British halls of power. Several of Britain's principal enemies in Europe, including France and Spain, were also ruled by Catholics and might potentially use Ireland as a springboard for invading Britain. The British goal, therefore, when it tried to entice English and Scottish Protestants to settle in the fertile lands of Northern Ireland in the early 1600s, was firstly to bring the Irish nobility to heel, and secondly to subdue and subjugate the Irish peasantry. Uh, Catholicism in Britain was widely regarded as a symbol of backwardness and barbarism, and it's this stigma with which the Irish are lumbered over the coming centuries as a backward, unenlightened people in need of redemption. By the 18th century, 
and following a number of conflicts in which the Irish are unfortunate enough to be on the losing side, Parliament enacts legislation that openly marginalises the Catholic majority in their own homeland, the so-called penal laws. In short, Catholics were prevented from having any position of status in Irish or British society or from owning any major property. Anyone who wanted to be anything in Ireland, therefore, would have to convert, if they were willing and able, to the Protestant faith. By the 18th century, what we have is fairly intellectual, progressive, Protestant middle class in Ireland, its focus being in Dublin. This, of course, the period of the Enlightenment, and what we get intertwined with the day-to-day jostling for privilege, power and control is a high degree of liberal and progressive thinking, helping to bring about a new sense of national awareness. Many Irish Protestants, particularly in Dublin, came to question the ongoing subjugation of their country by Britain, much as the Catholics always had, though the difference was, of course, that whereas the Catholics were a disenfranchised working-class people spread widely over the predominantly rural expanses of Ireland, the Protestants had the time, the influence and the capital to take their nation's bid for independence to, I think, a whole new level. They were also concentrated in urban centres, which made matters of communication and organisation exponentially simpler. For many Europeans, the 1790s was a period of distinct political upheaval, inspired in large part by both the free-thinking philosophies of the Enlightenment and by a rise in working-class discontent for the establishment. In July of 1789, revolution breaks out in France, leading to the abolition of the monarchy and the establishment of a secular and democratic republic, promoting liberty, equality and fraternity throughout the land. For many Europeans, including the Irish, this seemed like the dawn of a new, more egalitarian age, free from persecution and exploitation. But for those with status and wealth, it was a nightmare of epic proportions, as they witnessed the French aristocracy being brutally overthrown. Many European governments went to war with France during this period, including Britain, in 1793. It was during this time that London sought to curtail the growing ambitions of Irish nationalists at home, imprisoning members of the United Irishmen as well as organisations that openly sympathised with the aims of the 1789 revolution. Many of those who were convicted were transported to a newly established penal colony in the distant land of New South Wales. Dr Jones, acknowledging that political dissent was one offence that was likely to land you in Sydney and that the majority of political prisoners transported to the colony were Irishmen. Could you tell us a bit about what life might have been like for those who made this difficult voyage? So one fact pervades the history of colonial New South Wales. Life was tough. When James Cook first observes Botany Bay in 1770, he wrongly assumes that it's the dry season, when in fact it was the rainiest time of year. The colony, when it was founded in 1788, therefore, nearly starves, trying to plant crops, which its inhabitants wrongly assumed would grow in the Australian climate. Fear of interference from other colonial powers, including revolutionary France, was only surpassed, I think, by fears of drought, famine and pestilence. Between 1788 and 1792, some 4,000 or so convicts are landed in the new colony. Many of them were repeat offenders or lifelong criminals with very few skills that could really be utilised in the establishment of an efficient settlement. Many convicts did not even reach the colony, having perished on the perilous voyage from sickness or disease. In March 1790, HMS Sirius, one of the constituent ships of the First Fleet, and after which uh, I think there's a ferry in Sydney, which is named, is wrecked off Norfolk Island, trying to land supplies. 
forcing Governor Arthur Phillip to send his sole remaining vessel, the aptly named, I think, uh, HMS Supply, to Batavia, modern-day Jakarta, in the Dutch East Indies, in what is now Indonesia, to take on stores. Food is rationed sparingly during these first years of the colony. Anyone caught stealing food is punished severely, including six Marines who were executed for the crime in March 1789. Water is another commodity that was not readily available in the early days, although this becomes less of a problem after the establishment of the tank stream in what is today the intersection of Bridge and Pitt Street in Sydney's central business district. Convicts were the sole source of labour in the new colony, even after 1793, when the first free settlers are lured there by the promise of land grants and the prospect of having an abundant supply of cheap convict labour. By 1800, the population of Sydney Town, as it was then known, had reached around 2,500, of whom some 43% were convicts. Convict sentences ranged from 7 to 14 years, or, as was the case in many political dissidents, like the United Irishmen, for the term of their natural lives. Any convict who did not conform to the rules of the fledgling colony could be transferred to stricter penal settlements, including Norfolk Island, halfway between Australia and New Zealand, or later on even to Newcastle in the Hunter Valley, which was founded around the turn of the 19th century. In short, life was pretty tough in the new colony, for convicts, jailers and settlers alike. It wasn't like you could simply hop on a plane when the going got tough. Once you're in Sydney town, you're basically here to stay. In 1800, two ships, the Friendship and the Minerva, land in Sydney carrying United Irish prisoners. These were later followed by the Anne in 1801 and by five more vessels during 1802 and 1803. These political prisoners soon set about taking advantage of the colony's vulnerabilities, creating disturbances and hatching escape plans. One of the convicts aboard the Anne was a Tipperary rebel named Philip Cunningham, who had helped lead an unsuccessful mutiny whilst en route to the colony. Confined to the hellish conditions of Norfolk Island for his disobedience, Cunningham soon found himself transferred back to New South Wales, which was then in dire need of his skills as a stonemason. It was here that he was acquainted with other Irish political arrivals that were just as desperate to escape their exile. These included William Johnson, an Ulster United Irishman with Tyrone connections, and Samuel Hume, a former gun runner from Antrim. Dr Jones, describe for us what these men were actually planning. Was it simply escape they had in mind, or was there more to it than that? Looking at the scholarship we have available, it would seem that there are two schools of thought on what the Irish convicts who rebelled in Sydney in 1804 were actually planning. The traditional view is that they simply wanted to escape from the colony, to commandeer a ship and to sail away, possibly back to Ireland, where they could rejoin the fight for independence. The other possibility, however, which has been put forward more recently, is that the goal was to commandeer the colony itself, to establish a kind of new Irish republic in its place, a haven for Irish political refugees, perhaps. Now, just how realistic this latter goal was, given the colony's aforementioned shortcomings in food and resources, is really up to the listeners to decide. But this was possibly what some if not all of the rebels had in mind when they set out to challenge British control of the settlement in March 1804. What we do know for sure is that there had been some important news received by the prisoners in January about a new uprising in Ireland the previous year, led by the middle-class Protestant Republican Robert Emmett. This rebellion had essentially come to nothing. It basically fizzled out in the space of a day, and Emmett ends up following his idol, Theobald Wolfe Tone, whom you mentioned, to the gallows. 
one man who might have given his support to the Emmett conspiracy, often it's called a conspiracy, not a rebellion because of how short it really was, had he been in Ireland at the time, was the Sydney-side political convict Philip Cunningham, whom you mentioned, and who was presently engaged as the overseer of Masons at the government farm in Castle Hill, established by the governor Philip Gidley King in 1801. Cunningham was shrewd, but militant. One of his co-conspirators, Samuel Hume, was overseer of carpentry at the same institution, and the two men quickly set about building a support base amongst their fellow labourers, the majority of whom were also Irish political prisoners. The, the government had made the mistake of putting all their eggs in one basket, so to speak. Figures vary, but I think it is fair to say that there are around 200 convict labourers who were prepared to follow Cunningham and his cohort into action when word goes out on the afternoon of March 4th that the time to rise was at hand. The men at Castle Hill were only lightly guarded, and having overpowered what few captors they had, they seized whatever weapons they can find and set one of the houses on fire as a signal to other rebels around the colony. In a speech delivered shortly after the seizure of Castle Hill, Cunningham assures his followers that Sydney and Parramatta had already been taken and that they would soon be linking up with other rebels on the Hawkesbury. This combined force would then proceed to what is now Australia's oldest surviving public building, Old Government House in Parramatta, where they were reportedly going to plant a tree of liberty before sailing out of Sydney. Just how widespread in the colony was the support for this uprising? Dr Jones, how realistic was Cunningham's plan and what kind of opposition was it facing from the authorities? If one examines the history of the Irish struggle for independence as a whole, I think they'll find that there are certainly no shortage of inspiring speeches like the one given by Cunningham, often delivered at moments of crisis or indecision. I seem to recall a critic of militant Irish republicanism once saying that they can teach us nothing except how to die gloriously, when in reality I think what they really should have said is they can teach us nothing except how to die gloriously and how to make inspiring speeches, because these are the moments that were most often remembered and cited by future generations of Irish nationalists. In terms of how widespread Cunningham's support was, I think we only really need to look at the figures, that out of a total of around 3,000 people in the Sydney settlement at this time, including officials and free settlers, 300 convicts take part in the rebellion. This is, when you think about it, a tenth of the overall population of Sydney we're talking about, and it's really not difficult to see why the colonial authorities were so panicked. What's interesting, though, is that although the majority of rebels were Irish political prisoners, United Irishmen and others, there are a significant number of non-political prisoners who join them, that is, convicts that were transported for crimes other than political dissent, and there were numerous ones. And this only adds to the proof that what these people wanted was to escape the harsh realities of this alien and hostile environment, not hang around and play at government. On the flip side of the coin, there were Irish politicals that opted not to join the Rising, the most significant perhaps being the former United Irish General, Joseph Holt. Philip Cunningham, I think, was only a captain, as were uh, some of his cohort. Now, Holt's interesting. He cites the rebels making ready at Castle Hill and actually sets out to warn the authorities of the impending crisis. Not all the United Irishmen clearly were fanatics like Cunningham. They may have been self-professed patriots and revolutionaries, but many of them were still perfectly willing to make peace with their present situation as exiles in a distant land and even to contribute to what in effect, was a rare opportunity to build a virgin society from the ground up. Turning to the question of what opposition the rebels faced, Sydney Town at this time was garrisoned by a permanent regiment 
known as the New South Wales Corps, a force of around 500 men, tasked with guarding not simply Sydney, but all of New South Wales, and Norfolk Island as well. New South Wales at this time covers most of Australia, we must remember. The First Fleet had, of course, been escorted by the Royal Navy and its Marine Corps, but these troops are soon recalled to England and replaced by a permanent detachment staffed primarily by British Army soldiers. The problem with this arrangement was that the first four governors of New South Wales were all Navy men, all serving naval officers. And if we look at the bigotry and rivalry that existed between the armed services in Britain and in many other countries at the time, members of the army would probably not have taken too kindly to taking orders from members of the Navy. Arthur Philip, the first governor of New South Wales, is forced by his failing health to return to England in December 1792. And in the time it takes London to appoint his official successor, Vice Admiral John Hunter, in September 1795, the New South Wales Corps under Major Francis Gross has complete control of the colony. Gross and his successor, Colonel William Patterson, have often been blamed for much of the corruption that arose amongst the armed forces in Sydney at this time, including the famous monopoly that many officers had on the import of liquor. But the truth of the matter, in my opinion, is that they did the best they could under what would have been incredibly harsh conditions. The New South Wales Corps was not a very desirable posting for your average squaddy, and what you get, therefore, is essentially the dregs of the armed services filtering through, often taking advantage of their remoteness to abuse what little power they had. Naturally, there are exceptions to this, and I think an important one was Major George Johnston, who was not the official commander of the New South Wales Corps, but who happened to be in charge at the time of the Castle Hill Rebellion in 1804. And we'll be actually be hearing a lot more about George Johnston uh, when we discuss Governor William Bly and the Rum Rebellion of 1808 in a later episode. So, with Cunningham and the rebels rallying at Castle Hill on the night of the 4th of March, word reaches the authorities at Parramatta of an impending attack. A messenger is sent on a 20-kilometre ride to Sydney to alert the main body of the New South Wales Corps and Major Johnston is awakened at his house in Annandale to be told that Governor King is on his way. Taking command of 55 soldiers, Johnston arrives in Parramatta at around 5am on the morning of the 5th of March, having collected reinforcements en route. The rebels, meanwhile, having reached Constitution Hill overlooking Parramatta some hours earlier, were in a commanding position, their numbers having swelled to around 300 by this stage. Johnston divides his forces before pursuing them northwards to what is today the suburb of Roos Hill. By the time he catches up with Cunningham, he has rode ahead of his troops, who are forced to march on foot during a very hot day. Basically alone, Johnston asks to speak with Cunningham. Yes, I would say that I think it's an incredibly brave and bold move on Johnston's part to seize the initiative at this point whilst he is within range of the rebel force, and to actually request an audience with their leaders. Some might say that he was simply trying to buy time for the rest of his troops to catch up, whilst it may be that he was genuinely seeking to negotiate an end to the uprising. But it was still an incredibly brazen thing to do, I think, to actually demand that the rebels surrender or else, in the absence of any military backing. The rebel response, the infamous Death or Liberty slogan, that had long been the catch cry of the United Irishmen, prompts Johnston to ride back to his forces and to collect Father James Dixon, a Catholic priest and former United Irish supporter, to act as a go-between. Dixon, though he did not actually support the uprising when it took place, was indirectly involved in its inspiration 
when he delivers a service on the morning of the 4th of March, the morning before the rising, which states that he who is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. Words that I think would have struck a chord with Cunningham and his ilk. Johnston and Dixon then return to meet the rebel forces, where they once again appeal for them to surrender. Cunningham is distracted as Johnston's troops, exhausted from their long march, finally arrive on the scene, and it's at this point, rather in the style of Hollywood, I think, that the Major produces a, a pistol he had concealed and claps it to the head of one of the rebels, stating that he would blow his soul to hell if his cohort did not surrender. A firefight then ensues, in which at least nine rebels are killed, and the rest scatter in the confusion, rather like many of the battles that occurred in the 1798 uprising. There are no recorded casualties amongst Johnston's men, though, and it's not long before all the rebel leaders, including Cunningham, are in government hands. On Thursday the 8th of March, 1804, a court-martial was convened to try Philip Cunningham and the other leaders of the rebellion on two charges. That of tumultuously and traitorously assembling, armed, with an intent to overthrow His Majesty's government, and resisting, opposing, and attacking His Majesty's forces. Cunningham and five other men are found guilty and sentenced to hang. The convict rebellion at Castle Hill was not the last time Irish political prisoners would make trouble for the New South Wales colonial government, but it was certainly the most potentially hazardous incident to occur in the Sydney settlement up until this point. This battle has often been overlooked in favour of other violent episodes such as the Eureka Rebellion of 1854, when gold miners in Victoria staged an armed revolt against what they perceived to be unfair working conditions. Dr Jones, why are the events of 1804 so little known? I do think it's appropriate you should mention Eureka here, given that the miners that participated in establishing the Eureka Stockade in 1854 would have certainly been aware of the Castle Hill precedent, having selected among other things, the password of Vinegar Hill to help identify themselves. Roos Hill was for many years known as Vinegar Hill precisely because of its perceived resemblance to the knoll in County Wexford, Ireland, where the first battle had taken place between the British and the Irish in June 1798. The fact that the uprising is perceived this way as a kind of United Irishman's Rebellion, Part 2, gives us our first clue as to why the event never really went to heart here in Sydney. Uh, New South Wales was still an infant colony. The British remained British. Whilst there was no real conception yet of what it meant to be Australian, even the term Australian had yet to enter the wider vocabulary. Secondly, when one looks at the Eureka episode half a century later, it was the miners with whom local people, and indeed I think many of the local officials, sided as babblers and underdogs in what was a pretty toxic situation. Public opinion did not side with Philip Cunningham's rebels in quite the same manner. The colony then was already in a precarious position, as I've already outlined, and I think the tasteless actions of some disobedient convicts did not really do much to help matters. And I think this is why we are so often content simply to leave the events of 1804B. This having been said, there was a memorial that was unveiled to the uprising in Blacktown as part of the bicentennial celebrations of 1988. Now, my own feelings are that whilst the United Irishmen did make an enormous contribution to the development of Sydney and of Australia as a nation, it wasn't through armed revolt, it wasn't through men like Philip Cunningham that they made it. And this comes back to what we were saying earlier about the impact of Enlightenment thinking and the French Revolution. These ideals could really only make it to Australia during this period, which 
really could not have been further from the action through people like the United Irishmen and their successes in the narrative of Irish nationalism. Many of these former dissidents had highly successful careers here in Australia. Richard Dry, for example, a former member of the Irish Defenders who arrives in Sydney in 1800, becomes a respected citizen of Launceston in Tasmania. His son goes on to gain a knighthood for his services to the colonial government of Van Diemen's Land, as it was then known. Later rebels, like the participants in the failed 1848 rebellion by the Young Ireland movement, have had an even greater impact, with Charles Gavin Duffy, one of the Rising's leaders, going on to serve as one of Victoria's most colourful premiers of all time. There's a fantastic story, which I always enjoy, about Queen Victoria meeting Gavin Duffy and him informing her that he had once been one of nine men sentenced to death following the 1848 rebellion. Shocked at this information, Victoria then asks him if he knew what had become of the other eight men who had actually all been acquitted at the 11th hour. Well, said Gavin Duffy, Thomas Francis emigrated to the United States, where he became the governor of Montana. John Mitchell became a US politician, whilst his son served as mayor of New York. Terence McManus and Andrew Donoghue both became generals in the United States Army, serving during the Civil War period. Richard O'Gorman found his calling in Canada as Governor-General of Newfoundland, as did Andrew Darcy McGee, who served as Minister for Agriculture. Morris Lyon and Michael Ireland, meanwhile, were both believed to have been involved in Australian politics. So if you think today's government is a bit of a rogues gallery, then I think we only really need to look at history. This is Little Known History of Sydney. I'm Ilana Penderose. And I'm Dr Robert Jones. And we will see you next time. (laughs) 